So uh, good afternoon. And um, again, this is a, a presentation that's based on uh, a interpretation of W.E.B. Du Bois's work, uh, The Philadelphia Negro. Um, part of the reasons why I utilize W.E.B. Du Bois's The Philadelphia Negro is because it's one of the most comprehensive sociological studies uh, that has been conducted on African-American life in urban settings. And also uh, he um, actually presented some um, start evidence when it came to uh, the development of the black church and the social functions that the black church actually uh, actually has. So um, the reason why I um, use triangulation is because there's power in three, um, definitely. And also I incorporate the black sacred worldview paradigm. And uh, with the black sacred worldview paradigm, it's a framework for analyzing and placing the theological tradition, traditions of black churches from a historical, cultural, and sociological perspectives. Um, the uh, progenitors of the black sacred uh, worldview, uh, there's other terms for it, the black sacred cosmo worldview and the, uh, the black sacred worldview. Uh, these have been um, produced by uh, individuals such as uh, Dr. Lincoln and Mamaya McGraw and also uh, McDougal, uh, Sir, Dr. Sarah McDougal in recent um, history. Uh, when it comes to the Black Sacred Worldview paradigm, there's three, uh, three pillars of that uh, paradigm, which are the sacred inheritance, experience, and scripture. And when you look at the sacred inheritance, uh, it, what they're talking about are the African, West African uh, retentions that we've brought over during the Ma'afa and also how that has manifested in African-American life today. Um, so when you look at the experience, the experiences uh, definitely are uh, assumed with the racial oppression and what we've had to uh, deal with as far as slavery and uh, into segregation and how that has moved us out of that and what role did the black church play um, a lot of people don't realize that uh, there were uh, uh, African-American churches prior to uh, emancipation that were uh, influential in some of the um, the escaping of certain enslaved individuals, either whether it be north or south. Um, one of the first uh, ordained pa black pastors uh, in America, doc uh, his name was uh, Lemuel Haynes. Um, that's part of the experience. He actually wrote something called Liberty Further Extended. And what he was talking about was saying that the Declaration of Independence was not, uh, it did not include African-Americans in that or people, of, people who were free. And what he wanted to say was that liberty had to be extended. So when you look at the experience, that actually it, it turns into the scripture. Um, individuals such as, uh, you know, you Denmark Vesey, um, you know, you had other uh, other individuals who um, Nat Turner, um, who utilized the biblical scripture in order to liberate the minds of the people that they were trying to reach. Um, and again, the, the, these three uh, pillars are, you know, sacred because any black church that you uh, can come to today currently, you can see reminiscences of all three of these pillars in there. So to situate this understanding of the black megachurch, um, I wanted to, uh, you know, of course, you know, provide that context. Uh, when you look at Du Bois and uh, a lot of people don't look at Du Bois as being a theologian or somebody who dealt with religiosity or spirituality. However, if you look at um, any of his uh, as far as any of his works, you've noticed that there are some type of uh, references to religiousness or, uh, you know, the religiousness of other individuals. Uh, there are countless of publications that he came out with. Uh, the Souls of Black Folk is what uh, most people typically lean towards because of the, uh, you know, how he ingrains the spirituality within the whole uh, work itself. 
However, when it comes to the Philadelphia Negro, it's more of a sociological approach to the social functions of the black church, not so much of the religious aspects. So uh, a lot of people always wonder, what is a black megachurch? And uh, again, with the black megachurch, I I take the definition that other people have taken, which is uh, defined by the Hartford Hartford Institute by Scott Thuma and David Travis. And that's stating that it's a 2000 membership threshold and um, they uh, promote uh, Protestant churches, of course. And uh, they also promote uh, ideologies such as self-help theology, prosperity theology or the word of faith movements. Uh, You have fundamentalism. Um, You also have the. you know, the evangelical, uh, you know, I guess you could say the Christian right. When, when you look at people like Oral Roberts, um, um, you know, Eddie Long, you know, if you want to get more contemporary with people who are, are conservative in their ideologies, even though he had passed, you know, the the impact that he had on, you know, certain types of churches and the word of faith movement with uh, Paul, uh, Pastor Polk, uh, which was a, another prominent uh, white pastor in, America, uh, in the United States. He ordained a lot of the pastors here in Atlanta. Um, what I personally believe that the black megachurch, what distincts them from other megachurches are the continuous of all black clergy, uh, staff members, and the performance of black gospel music. Sometimes it's contemporary gospel as well. Individuals such as Ty Tribbett and, um, um, you know, and uh, Kurt Franklin, those are two individuals as an example of uh, the type of gospel music that a lot of these churches in- incorporate. Um, So with the faith based organizations, uh, again, this is all in threes. So I'm taking those three, those these three concepts and actually putting them together to create a conceptual understanding of the growth and the proliferation of megachurches. And with the faith based organizations here in America, I've taken the definition by the U.S. government. And and when when they're talking about faith based organizing, they're talking about three types. Um, The congregations themselves are considered organizations, faith-based organizations. But if you look at the national networks of things, that's also a a part of it, which includes uh, social service arms, uh, you know, social service charities. Anything in that regard could be considered a a faith-based organization. It doesn't have to be directly tied to a church, but if they have a Christian or a fundamental belief under that, it would be considered faith-based. They don't also have to be Christian. They can also be uh, a a part of the uh, Muslim faith or any other type of uh, faiths. Um, But of course, for this study with the black megachurches, we're definitely looking at the ones who are uh, Protestant and um, in in, in their ideologies and approaches. Um, The third is a freestanding religious organization. And those are, uh, are, you know, that are incorporated separately from the congregations and national networks. Um, Those could be some of the uh, child service uh, service um, entities that have a Christian background. Um, I know we have one in my hometown called Helping, Helping Hands, and they're Christian-based, but they also, uh, you know, they're separate from a church, but they have an undertone with that. Um, you know, the YMCA, those are, you know, some of the other, you know, cases where they're bound by the Christian um, faith, but they're not directly linked to a church per se. So with, when you're looking at conceptualizing you know, the mission of the faith-based organizations in black megachurches, they can be interpreted through the six functions that I uh, the boys mentioned six functions in the Philadelphia Negro, the black church. And those were raising the annual budget, the maintenance of membership, the social intercourse and amusement, setting of moral standards, promotion of general intelligence, efforts for social betterment and amusement. 
And, and, and when it comes to, you know, all these six functions, if you look at any church, just, you know, your home church in particular, you definitely can see these six functions that are incorporated. They might not be to the mass scale of a mega churches, but most churches are concerned with their annual budget. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why uh, certain churches end up in financial strains is because they don't have a, a grasp on that understanding of how to balance the books as well as receive federal money and how that money has to be separated legally in order to remain in 501c3 status. Uh, 401c3, I'm sorry. So w when it comes to those types of statuses with the nonprofits that you have to be able to understand that uh, we're bound by uh, governmental policies such as the Johnson Amendment and other things that are, um, you know, it all factors into why things are the way they're set up. So what is triangulation? Again, it's it's uh, it's in threes. It's the social science. Um, it's social science uh, based in this regard. You can use triangulation when it comes to the natural sciences as well as uh, any other types of disciplines. But basically, what you're doing is you're mixing. Uh, you're using uh, two different. You're using two or more methods in order to study a phenomenon or a uh, particular issue that's plaguing your uh, particular research area. So, um, and what you're gonna do is you're mixing the data types known as data triangulation, and it's thought to help validate claims that might arise from an initial pilot study. So uh, when it, this is more so when it comes to qualitative analysis. A lot of people say that qualitative analysis lacks certain things versus quantitative analysis. However, with triangulation, what you're doing is you're asking the same question, but you're actually studying it from three different methods. So that could be if I'm asking one question about, say, the uh, faith-based organizations in the church, I could look at, I could do surveys from the congregation members. I could actually do, um, I could do, um, a focus group that could be another uh, another way I could do a focus group could be one. And I could also do a content analysis of, say, the sermons themselves of the pastors in order to answer those certain questions of the roles that the faith based organizations have in their in their congregations. And so, um, again, and this is like a, 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 a little you know, you have the different qualitative, quantitative triangulation of it. And all you're doing is uh, comparing the data, data content analysis and you're coming up with a cohesive argument to see whether or not did if you studied it three different ways and three different methods in one study, would it be able to uh, yield results? Would you be able to yield the same results? And so when it looks at the interpretation of a Du Boisian triangulated uh, socio-religious method, um, and when I, when I say that is you're conflating the uh, black sacred worldview paradigm, but you're going to contextualize it. So what I've done is I've contextualized the sacred inheritance experience in scripture, and I funneled that into a micro understanding of those uh, those pillars. And I'm looking at the uh, and transmuting that into the historical, sociological and literary uh, and a thematic analysis of the churches themselves to understand whether or not their faith-based organizations match what they're actually preaching on a Sunday, or is does it match what the community says that these churches are supposed to be doing? Um, when you look at the six functions, and, 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 and with, the, with those six functions, if you can, if you can contextualize those and look at the faith-based organizations that say one or 10 megachurches have, you can actually grasp and have a better understanding of the roles that those, uh, or the, uh, the functions or the level which function is, is more valid at that church. 
So uh, what I did was as a sample, I only took one part of the triangulation just to prove an example. And what I would do is use three different methods, but this is just to show one method in the triangulation, but I would ask it two different ways to see if I would yield these same results. So what I did, what I, I did, um, I took 10 churches and with 10, with the 10 mega churches that I used, I, I only looked at their websites to uh, to ascertain what type of uh, organizations they actually promoted. Um, I also included the auxiliaries of the churches as well. Um, those can be considered faith-based organizations. Um, it just depends on the function and uh, the role that that uh, organization plays. So uh, naturally, if there is a youth mission at the church and it's an auxiliary or a, a basketball auxiliary club, or that's also considered a faith-based organization by, by right. So with the sample, I did 10 Atlanta-based mega churches. And again, I know this is small, so you probably won't be able to see them all, but I'll, I'll be able to go through it all again. So when I looked at it, I, I chose, it was two Baptist churches that I used, uh, one AME church, one Disciple of Christ, one Seventh-day Adventist, one United Methodist church, and one, four that were non-denominational. And out of those 10, I, uh, I was able to, uh, I was able to total 327 uh, auxiliaries or faith-based organizations that were a part of all 10 of those organizations. So what I did was I broke those up into the different six functions that the boys mentioned to see whether or not which one was in order of importance. Um, a lot of the reasons are is people say that black mega churches are not political, they're not engaged in the community. So I just wanted to test that question out to see, do their faith-based organizations re refute that? Is there any way that I can prove that they are engaged, they are doing certain things, it's just that it's not the way that the community sees it as. So what I, what I noticed was, and, and the boys mentions in his study that the, uh, the of course, that the uh, that music and entertainment was a was a priority. And naturally, in this, I've noticed that this uh, 22 percent or 74 of them actually were geared towards that was geared towards trying to uh, attract new members and keep the members at, um, at, I guess, happy and keep them satisfied and retain them. Um, I also noticed that uh, when it came to the social intercourse and amusement, it was important. And Du Bois stressed that each church forms, formed its own social circles. And um, now we have cell church, cell groups in certain mega churches. And it operates in that same functionality of trying to uh, have group interaction versus the mass interactions on a given Sunday. So seven days a week, you have different auxiliaries that are meeting, but they're they're actually meeting based on like-minded uh, understanding of things. So there might be a ministry in uh, who are a bunch of lawyers, or there might be a ministry that there's women who are over the age of 55, um, but they their children die from a drunk driver. And in that regard, it keeps them connected to the, um, the, the general body of the, uh, the church themselves. And so um, also when it came to uh, with the social betterment and amusement, you know, you notice that, uh, you know, there's also secret societies that are a part of the churches. Um, naturally, smaller churches had uh, things situate like the, the Masonic lodges that were sometimes annexed to the church. But you also have some other uh, fraternities and organizations that are now participating in uh, in church development and church growth. Um health health groups you know you have health functions and everything like that that are really trying to bring social betterment um, you know to the communities 
Um, setting moral standards. Uh, he know the boys mentions that is setting moral standards. He talks about the the moral standards are therefore set by the congregation and vary from church to church, church to church to some degree. Um, you know, naturally, when we look in the media, we've seen certain black pastors who've met with uh, President Trump and they've been highly criticized in the media. However, uh, that's their moral standard because that's who the demographics, that's who they're speaking to. So the congregations of these churches don't have the issue. It's the outside people who are looking in that had the issue that they met with Trump. Uh, but when you look at individuals like um you know, uh, Pastor Bryant, Jamal Bryant right now, um, he, he's caught a lot of slack because he said that burning um, sage was a uh, demonic. Um, and a lot of African-American people in the community have refuted that recently, have come out and spoke out against that. Uh, again, that was something that was not speaking to what the congregation, well, I guess the people in general, didn't like. Uh, I'm not sure what the church said, particularly what he said, but naturally that's what everybody else has said. And so uh, my initial observations when it came to this, um, and again, I'm just kind of, you know, going through and skipping through, but if anybody has any questions after, just let me know. Um, but the initial observations that I've noticed is uh, prosperity and raising the annual budget is expected to be important naturally. Um, each of the websites that I noticed had a, a pay via online um, function out where you can actually pay via via cash app or any type of uh, direct uh, automatic withdrawal from your account. There was multiple ways that you could actually donate and provide, uh, you know, financial assistance to the congregations themselves. Um, I've actually listened in online and live streamed and watched them live stream. And there was ways you could actually pay during via the live stream as well. Um, you could call in and make payments and stuff like that. Um, so it was very open to helping raise the, the general capital of that uh, church community. Um, you know, so again, there was a total of 28 auxiliaries that were dedicated to directly raising the annual budget. And these also included campaign uh, ministries that are uh, that are geared towards, you know, capital campaigning, uh, fundraising committees. Uh, all of those are a part of those auxiliaries and faith based organizations that are just dedicated towards trying to uh, ask, um, obtain grants and receive federal money, if not local money um, to help the churches uh, prosper. So ultimately, this research assumed that the larger the church is, the less likely it would uh, engage in social justice and other forms of activism and be more towards that charitable, that charitable approach to, uh, you know, church growth and development and community awareness and development. And so, uh, you know, a lot of them I did see were trying to attract uh, members from other churches. They were trying to engage the youth. Um, there are some churches in Atlanta here that have hip hop ministries. Um, they're geared towards that understanding that uh, they have to change their uh, their understanding of how church operates. Um, you know, I know there's some that have uh, it's more of a concert, a production. Um, I know there's others that bring in speakers instead of a traditional sermon. They'll bring in a business person to come in and teach their congregation about financial stability and awareness and how they can be fiscally more responsible. But at the same time, still give and uh, serve Christ in that regard. Um, so when it comes to this research presenting evidence that the, the, the boys 1899 study is applicable is because um, it suggests that faith based organizations have always been dedicated to uh, some type of service, whether it be justice or charity based. Um, but it also impact it will always impact uh, churches as well as black mega churches 
uh, historically, socially, and religiously. And um, that's it. Thank you.